1996, I got very sick after, I, you know, my, my vision went double. I lived my life basically in, in a tilt-a-whirl, going full speed, if you can imagine. I mean, everything was spinning on a regular basis. I couldn't keep anything down, lost 40 pounds uh, almost uh, immediately uh, after every test imaginable at the University of Cincinnati. They shipped us to Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, Minnesota. There for two weeks, going through, again, every imaginable, intense, expensive test. I met with a slew of doctors. I met with neurologists and internists and psychologists and audiologists and anthropologists. I met with all these ologists guys. I met with all of them. I met a whole team of them. So at the end of those two weeks, I'm meeting with the chief neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic, rated number one in the world in neurology at that time. He said, Mr. Harris, we don't know. And I said, whoa, 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 hang on, wait, wait, wait. I just met with some of the finest doctors, their reputation is the finest in the world. I just went through some, some testing that is cutting edge, subjected myself to the most sophisticated, intricate testing equipment, diagnostic machinery on this planet. This, you guys are the best in the world. If you don't know, who knows? He said, nobody. Go home. That night when I got on the plane, Teresa and I, you can imagine the hopelessness. As long as there was another doctor, another test, there was hope. They were going to figure this out. But to hear them say, all the king's sources, all the king's men, the best in the world, we don't know. Have you ever had a hopeless situation? Some of y'all, much worse than, than that. But maybe you're a student and you're looking to go to college and you've done, you've done halfway decent, but you're looking at the price of these schools and you're thinking, there's no way. How come I work so hard and it's just so far out of reach? I will never get there. Or maybe you, you thought you were going to have this nice retirement nest egg in the financial fiasco of the last several years. You're now looking for plan B. What's going to happen now? Maybe you've gotten your pink slip from your boss or your spouse has served you papers. A prodigal has left home. And there's just a sense of hopelessness. Something happened 2,000 years ago. That if it's true, it redefines everything. Everything has changed. Turn with me in your Bibles, Luke chapter 24. If you don't bring a Bible, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Several different secular sources tell us of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we think sometimes, oh, Jesus was like a fable. No, 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 no. There were ten sources of people who didn't like him at his time who wrote about him. We learn a lot from their, their, their writings. But the majority of the information on the resurrection we learn about in the Bible. Now, the Bible isn't one big old book. It's really 66 different ancient manuscripts, some of them written before Jesus came around, some of them written after he had left. But there are a few that were written while he was here or right after of his life, written by a gentleman who shifted their life completely. It was transformed because of something. And let's read just a portion of one of their stories, Luke chapter 24, beginning verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. 
he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day and raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Easter, Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away. At that point, darkness was derailed. Hell was dethroned. Death was destroyed. Satan was depressed. And hopelessness was defeated. The tomb was empty. Hope was full on that first Easter Sunday morning. At that point, faith was vindicated. The prophets were validated. The guards, they were agitated. The Sanhedrin was aggravated. But freedom was liberated. During that time, that first Easter Sunday morning, hate lost, health failed, hope was born, and love won. You got something beyond yourself worth living for. You got something beyond yourself worth dying for. You got something beyond yourself worth hoping for. That, that first Easter Sunday morning was the central proclamation of the greatest victory over the darkest enemy by the noblest hero for the loftiest cause in the history of the world. Jesus' resurrection was not metaphorical or allegorical or hyperbolical or methodological. It was actual, factual, and historical. Or was it? See, that's the question, isn't it? Uh, A lot of times we take the resurrection of Jesus and we move it from historical event category to folklore category. We move it from the history books to Aesop's fables. And it is a nice story. And it's part of our tradition and it makes you feel good and it's inspiring and stuff. But don't move it into the historical category. But I would say that unless your worldview incorporates and comes to grips with this idea of the resurrection of Jesus, hopelessness is where it will lead. Let me give you an example. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's a uh, chief justice of... uh, United States Supreme Court. He's probably one of the most quoted legal minds in U.S. history. He said this. He said, There is no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. The world produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance, and the only reason is because it is incongruous to the world I want, the world that everyone is trying to make according to their own power. You see what he's saying? He's saying, when I die, I rot. That when the sun goes out, everything ends. And at that point, on that day, it's irrelevant what you thought was good and what you thought was important and how you lived and right and wrong. It's all irrelevant at that day because it all goes away. Now, this he got in some trouble, actually, for saying this. A Supreme Court justice saying that which implied strongly there is no right or wrong. Your right feelings, okay, but don't let them trump anybody else's feelings. But all he was trying to do is work out his worldview. He just took his worldview to its logical conclusion. We all have a worldview. Issue is that we have not taken it to its logical conclusion. But if we do, and it doesn't incorporate a, a resurrection that's in the truth category, hopelessness. Isa was a 19th century Japanese haiku poet. He uh, lived a life of tragedy. I mean, his mom died at an early age. And then tragedy after tragedy. Many years later, after his daughter died and on and on, he went to a a Zen master seeking solace. 
And the, the master reminded him of the teachings of Buddhism and said, Isa, our lives are an illusion. Like the morning dew, our lives will evaporate with the rising sun. Life is an illusion. Like the morning dew, our lives will evaporate with the morning sun. Isa left, still committed to his orthodox Buddhism, and wrote an incredible poem. It says, the world is dew. The world is dew. And yet, and yet, that is, is incredible, hauntingly incredible, because you see what he's doing. He's wrestling with the logic of, of what he believes and the logic of, of where life takes him. Isa, as the Zen Buddhist, has got to say, life's an illusion. It does, it's totally irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's all an illusion. But Isa, the father, and Isa, the son, Isa, he's got his tortured agony of love. He can just scream into the empty darkness that Zen sheds no light on and say, and yet, I mean, I believe this. I do, I do. I do. But I, I, I can't live it out. I need more than that. If you take your worldview to its logical conclusion, you will find that the supreme question you have to answer is, is this resurrection of Jesus true? Because if he really conquered mortality, then I better listen to what he's got to say. And then when the sun goes out one day, you know what? Maybe it's not all over. That's an important question. Now, of course, over the years, different theories have come up about the resurrection, what really happened with this. And one of the theories is a, a resuscitation. See, Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of like mostly died. You know, and then they took him and they stuck him in this grave, in the cool, damp grave somehow. You know, oh, you know he resuscitated. Three days later, he felt better. He got up, moved the stone, and came on out. And you say, really? Uh, let me make sure. They beat this guy black and blue. They take a cat of nine tails so that all of the skin from his neck down to his ankles shredded. The muscles are shredded. They nail him to a cross for six hours. They take a lance and they, they go underneath his ribcage and pierce his heart. They have his death verified by professional executioners whose livelihood depends on them getting this right. Then they mummify Jesus and they stick him in the tomb. And after three days, tell you what, after three days, from a cold, I'm not feeling better. I can't imagine. What's he just, oh, I feel so much better. He gets up and moves the stone and takes on all the guards, maybe wraps him up with his mummy wrappings. I don't know. Come sashays into town. I don't think so. I think that requires more faith than anything else I've heard. Uh, there's another theory, of course, that says, well, those people at that time, see, they were simple-minded people. They, they, ignoramuses, you know, eh, they believed anything. Well, there's no studies that show that IQ has been rising over the years, right? C.S. <laughs> Lewis calls this, calls this intellectual snobbery or chronological snobbery. Very intelligent, sharp people, not duped, stupid folk. We say, well, well, okay, they weren't simple people, but they were religious people. They were kind of looking at a resurrection. And that's true. They were religious people. And because of that, I would say that's our first reason why this couldn't be made up story. Understanding a little bit about their understanding of resurrection. This is what they thought. Jewish people, they thought that God created the world and it was good and perfect, but then evil entered it, messed it all up, injustice and pain and on. But one day, see, God was going to remake it and kind of restore it to what it was. 
That's the end of the age, the end of the time. And he was going to get rid of evil and he was going to bring justice and, and judgment and he was going to get rid of pain and tears and burdens and pride and prejudice. It was going to be out the door. And then he was going to raise up all of the righteous and they were going to be able to experience. This was the, the Jewish uh, eschatology, their understanding of what was going to happen. Uh, give you an example. Remember, Jesus talks to uh, Martha. Her brother just died. And Jesus says, oh, Martha, Martha, don't you know that your brother will, will rise again? And what does she say? She says, oh, yeah, 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 I know. At the end time, yeah, yeah, the last judgment. Yeah, that's when it's going to happen. But that doesn't help me today, Lord. This, see, this was their understanding of what was going to happen. Remember Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. These are like undercover Christians. They kept their faith underground because it was going to cost them too much. But when Jesus died, he's hanging on the cross. It's Friday late afternoon, they go to the governor and say, Hey, Pilate, can we have his body? Usually Rome left the body on the cross just to remind people not to be messing with Rome. But Pilate said, Okay, you can take him. Now, if they thought he was going to, he was going to be resurrected in, in three days, he was going to rise from the dead in three days, what, do you, what would they do? Maybe take him home, wash him off, prop him up in a chair, you know, put a remote in his hand and some chips and stuff at this. Because when he wakes up in three days, he's going to be hungry and we're, we're ready for him. But what do they do? They, they, they take him, they wrap his body in cloth, and then they smear it with this, with this resin, uh, sp spiced gummy substance. And they wrap it in more cloth, then, then more resin gummies. 100 pounds. If Jesus had weighed 170, by the time they got done with him, he weighed 270. They mummified him. Now, why would they tie him up and glue him down if they thought he was going to rise from the dead in three days? They weren't thinking that this was a possibility. The women go to the tomb, right? Now, are they bringing popcorn because they want to watch his resurrection? Because that's what he said, man. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be quite the show. They're bringing spices. And why are they bringing spices if we read the text? They realize that two men... Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are the ones who did the burial thing. And guys don't do that very well. They were going to go in there and they were going to finish the job that these two guys had done. Uh, then one of the other stories we find in scripture of another woman who went to the tomb. When she saw it empty, was she cheering? Yay, he's risen. No, look what it says. Uh, they asked her, women, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know but where they've put him. She says, the tomb's empty. She's not rejoicing. She's crying over this. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus because dead people don't rise from... But so, so she asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I'll go get him. I don't know why you do this, but just let me know. I'll take care of it. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she'd heard that voice call her name just like that many, many times. She turned to no way way. The folk at this point weren't expecting a resurrection. They went and talked to the men about it and said, guess what? And what did the men say? Oh, that's right. He did say that. Yay! Yay! Is that what the men said? It said that the men listened to the women and their words were to them as nonsense. They looked at him. Oh, why? Oh, why? You know, they, they, they did not think that these gals' perspective, their attitude was right, that their understanding was correct, obviously, because dead people don't come back to life. It just doesn't happen. That's what we would think. It doesn't happen. Uh, Ken Davis tells a story of a gal looking out her back window. She sees her German shepherd shaking the daylights out of the neighbor's rabbit. 
She goes, oh, no, these are the neighbors. We didn't get along real well. Now what are they going to So she grabs her broom and she goes outside and she's banging on her dog until it drops the, the rabbit. She picks up this very dead carcass of this bunny rabbit. She's going, oh, man, what do I do now? So she panics. She takes it in and she bathes this thing and she cleans it up as much as she can. She gets the blow dryer and gets it nice and fluffy. She sneaks into the neighbor's yard and she sticks it back in the cage and kind of props it up. About, about an hour later, she hears a scream. And she runs out and she goes, what's the problem? And her neighbor says, our bunny rabbit, it died two weeks ago and we buried it in the yard. So I, but it's come back to life. I don't know what's going on. They knew that dead bunnies, dead rabbits don't come back to life. These guys knew too that dead rabbis do not come back to life. It's not like they were thinking and expecting this. This, this idea of Jesus' resurrection was outside the categories of their, their understanding. It was outside their religious beliefs. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. That's one of the reasons why we look at this and we go, this was just too culturally strange of a story to gather any traction. Unless, unless it was true. Another thing that's very interesting about the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have as the pinnacle of their story the, the resurrection of Jesus. And each of these guys has women coming to the tomb first and being the witnesses. Well, uh, that would be actually a major cultural faux pas because women's words were not uh, respected at this time in this, this culture. Matter of fact, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. If you committed a crime in front of ten other people and those ten people were women, you got off scot-free because their perspective did not account for anything. If these guys are upstairs in a room kind of writing a story down saying, okay, we've got to make sure this is believable to people, what are we going to do? They would not incorporate women. They had nothing to gain by including women there. Everything to lose. The only reason they would have all clearly incorporated women would be if it really happened this way. It was really true. There's, uh, there's another... Uh, and I wish we had the time to look at it. There's a, another evidence here, though. And that's the, the changed lives of the disciples. You know, I don't have a verse on this one. But it's John 20, verse 19. On, on uh, early Sunday, we find all the disciples locked upstairs in a room. And it says they're there out of fear. They're afraid because of Sanhedrin, man. They killed Jesus. And what's gonna, what are they going to do to them? And so they were afraid. We knew that they were confused. And we knew, we know too, that there was some anger between them. They were, they were not bold. They were very afraid. Very afraid. And then by the end of the day, the door swinging on its hinges. The room is empty. And every one of those guys, not two or three of them, every one of them, are out in the streets boldly confessing that Jesus rose from the dead right in the face of the Sanhedrin. Matter of fact, the Sanhedrin didn't like it and ended up beating them up. But you know, how did they respond to this? Look at this. It says, Then the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What would propel these guys to be proclaiming this in the face of such suffering? You know, as I was thinking this through, I went back in my, my mind. I was eight years old, maybe nine. I can't remember exactly. My best friend in the world, though, was Gerald Simon. 
Gerald and I did everything together. We went to school together every day on bikes together. We went everywhere and ball and games. We were constantly together. So when we had a fallen out, it crushed me. I thought it was all done. And I was so incredibly sad. Well, I don't know how much time elapsed before we got back together, but I remember when we did. We were standing in my backyard, pictures real clear in my mind, in Chicago. It was in December because it was about 5 o'clock. It was dark. It was snowing. And we had our arms around each other. And we were singing, Buddies again. Buddies again. And I, I remember going out and reaching and grabbing some snow and just smashing it in my face as we're singing on. And what I was saying is, Nothing can hurt me. <laughs> Do it as long as I've got him back. I thought it was lost. A relationship was shot. But now that I've got him back, man, nothing is, is causing the pain now. I think these guys are in the same boat. They're saying the Sanhedrin, do what you want to us. I, we know what we saw. I mean, this doesn't have this. He's real. This is true. And no amount of pain is going to stop us. Maybe that's why every one of these guys died either in prison or a martyr's death. You know, God transforms the lives of those who come to grips with the truth of the resurrection. He did it back then and he does it today. In just a moment, I want to direct your attention to the screen. And we're going to look at the life of one of ours, one of our people, and see how God has transformed their lives. So if you look at the screen, give your attention to the screen for just a moment. Amazes me that you're still alive, Damon. Yes, I'm. I'm still here. <laughs> but now you run our nursery. You're an elder here at the church, which means you're one of the top spiritual leaders here. I think that I mean you've got your degree in plastics engineering. You've got a great family. Anybody who knows you and they didn't know your past would think you kind of grew up like a male version of Mother Teresa, uh, humble, gentle, wise, ridiculously smart, godly person. 
what in the world happened to get you from point A to point B? And how low did you end up over here? Um, well, as you can imagine from uh, that background, um, my life was a lot of bad choices. Um, you know, some that some that I uh, were kind of happened to me, and I sort of went along with, and other ones that I did, uh, you know, I cho- chose on my own. Um, I used to uh, I would mix um, all of those things together. Uh, sometimes we would I would ride home, <clears throat> um, like after a party, I would hop on my motorcycle, and um, drive. Intended to, intend to go home, uh, but I would actually end up somewhere else. And when I would get there, it, would, it was extremely scary. So you begin to think um, many times. One time we had a, a party where we were hallucinating and uh, mixed that with alcohol and marijuana. <clears throat> we got the munchies. So we decided to hop in the car and go get a pizza. Um, on the way, we had a, a terrible car accident. Uh, nearly lost my life and three other people. Uh, we missed a telephone pole by just a couple feet. Um, and we went back home and Basically, that, that whole accident was so scary, and because of the hallucinating uh, drugs, I, was, I relived it. I can't even tell you how many times, because I didn't know if it was real or if this was uh, you know, just happening. Um, <clears throat> drug overdose multiple times, nearly died from that. Um, often wondering if I was going to make it, thought this was it. And uh, one time in particular, <clears throat> I had, was getting ready to go to work, and I figured that I was still so... I had overdosed on cocaine and went to take a shower and I stuck my hand in the shower and I couldn't feel the water. And so I set the dial, you know, so it wouldn't be too hot or too cold and just took a shower without actually ever feeling the water. Um, I thought that was going to be the end that day for sure. Um, But all of that stuff basically began, I I began to wonder, I began to think, is this really it? Is Is this what life's all about? You know, you get really high and go really low and kind of recover and then do it all over again, just over and over. Um, that was my life. And I began to think and wonder, is there, is there more than this? You know, why am I here? Is there a God? Um, stuff like that. And, and uh, <clears throat> so basically at the time, I, I lived in a very small, very old trailer in the corner of a trailer park. In fact, my trailer was so old that it had a Ford refrigerator. And, uh, yeah, I didn't know they made refrigerators either. Um, but I went outside one night, and I looked up into the sky, and it was a beautiful black night with just the stars and whatever. And I just sort of said, is anybody out there? You know, who are you? And, are you, you know, basically that was it. And there was no shooting star. There was no lightning, no thunder. No, you know, didn't hear anything. Um, but the strangest thing started happening. The next couple of weeks, <clears throat> I would be driving, And uh, I would see a sign that would say, you know, God loves you. Have you read your Bible? Or, you know, have you talked to Jesus today? And I had driven by these signs all the time. But they just seemed to be different. They seemed to mean something. It was just weird. Um, And I would overhear people in, like, restaurants or in lines. I could be standing in line at the grocery store. And I would overhear two people's conversation. And they would say, you know, well, I was praying about this, and, you know, God and this and that, and he answered my prayer. And I was thinking, you know, it was like they were, what they were saying was like they were choreographed for me. And eventually I got it. I realized that, you know, and I didn't care if it was Buddha or Muhammad or or whoever, you know, anything. I just wanted to know who God was, the truth. And um, I began to realize that God was trying to get through to me this is me. So I got a Bible, and I started reading it from the beginning. 
And uh, <clears throat> I read it faithfully. I began praying and, and kind of developed a relationship with this God guy um, and, and sort of felt like he was there and, you know, just he was comforting and whatever. Um, it's still all the while. I'm doing everything that I had to done. I mean, that was my life, so that was still going on. But one day, <clears throat> I met a guy and uh, started talking to him, and I think he was trying to share his faith with me, you know, like those Christian people do. Um, and he started talking to me, and I, I, so I started telling him, well, you know, that's really strange. This is what happened. Here's what's going on with me. And he said, you know, you should just start reading in the book of John. And I was like, well, that's like way over here, you know, and I'm still back in like Leviticus or something trying to figure this out. Um, and he's like, no, 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 you, you can just jump up here and start reading in the New Testament. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't know you could do that. I thought you read a book from the beginning to the end. So, so I began reading um, the Gospels. And in the Gospels <clears throat> is where my, my relationship with the Lord, with God, had, it, was, it just started taking off to a whole new level. And, and it was growing before as well, but um, it, it, be, it got to a whole new level. And at some point, I realized, you know, what was going on here, that I needed to be saved. I needed to be forgiven. And I came home one day, um, and I, I walked into my, uh, my room of my trailer, and I was just exhausted, just so tired and just burned out my life emotionally, everything. And I, I just kind of collapsed. I was just on my knees, and I actually, you know, I just kind of laid down, and I was like this on the ground. And I was staring at the bottom of my dresser. And I can still picture the image like you can't imagine. And that was the moment that I just gave my life to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm sorry, but I don't have much to give you, but this is it. This is, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, you know, thank you. And, you know, I got up. Uh, afterwards, there was no smoke. There's no mirrors. You know, no, no flashing lights or anything. But when I got up... I felt something that I had never really felt, and I didn't know what it was back then, but it was hope. I had hope. And I got, <clears throat> I sat down, I actually had an old computer, and a really old at that time, and uh, I typed a letter to the Lord, and I just said, thank you for accepting me, you know, into your home and into your house. And I basically proclaimed being born again um, that day, and that was October 17th, 1993. So um, after that, um, my relationship with, with the Lord just exploded again. Um, and I, I began to learn so much. And God began to clean me. He began to work on my... I was addicted to so many things that just controlled my life. You know, all those drugs and just that lifestyle is so hard. Um, so one at a time, you know, God was like, you know, you quit dating. It's like, okay. So I quit dating, and I just I kept doing all the other stuff. Um, but I honored, you know, what was asked of at the, at the time. And one by one, uh, worked through the, you know, like, you know, it was uh, marijuana and then alcohol and cocaine and crack and finally cigarettes. And, and one at a time, he freed me from those things, which were just horrible, the bondage. Um, <clears throat> And after that, I mean, he, he began to work. Um, after I was sort of you know, clean, I felt so free. And I thought I was done, but I wasn't. <clears throat> um, the Lord began working on my heart, uh, my language, you know, the things that come out of you, that you how, the way you think, your thoughts, all that stuff. And uh, he began to work on that. And, and then I went through like a healing process where the Lord <clears throat> really, like, Jesus just helped me 
um, I contacted, you know, with a lifestyle like this, you hurt a lot of people. It's not just you. And I attempted to contact everybody that I could think of or go visit them and basically make you know, an apology and explain my story to them and tell them what had happened to me. Um, and I guess, you know, from there, uh, the Lord has just, he's blessed me so much. I have a, a beautiful wife and three awesome kids. And, uh, I mean, my, uh, I just can't thank him enough. So, you know, the, the summary of the whole thing is this. If you look at my, from the beginning to the point where I met Jesus, it was basically a downhill trend. It's not to say that I had, my whole life was bad. I had birthday parties. I went to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, I was a kid in, in other ways and, and diff, had good times. But as a whole, it was a downward slope. It was getting worse. And eventually, I would have been gone. Um, but since I met the Lord and have walked with Him, and He's carried me. It has been just the opposite. It's an uphill trend. And that's not to say that I don't have bad days and that things are um, perfect all the time because life happens to me too, just like everybody else. And so, but the general direction is improving. And, you know, to end is, is really just that he's not finished with me yet. Like, I'm still a work in progress. Yeah. Thank you. You may be here this morning, your first time, maybe you've been here 25 years, and you're into church, but you've never had that seen the bottom of your dresser type of experience where you really have surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you're a student here, and you know, you know what, you grew up here. That's great, good. But you're riding on the coattails of your parents' faith. And at some point, maybe today, you need to get to a place where you say, you know what, thanks for my parents and my family. But right now, I'm surrendering my life to you. This is my choice. You take over the steering wheel. I'm, I'm not there anymore. Maybe you're an adult, and you know what? You've been riding your heritage coattails as well. Uh, you were baptized as a little kid. Your confirmation. Your, your, your spouse comes to church all the time. You come once in a while. You're not, you're not a bad person. You're not a bad person, comparatively speaking. But you've never saw the bottom of your dresser. You've never surrendered your life to Christ never realized that he died and he rose for you. And you've never given your life to him. And maybe you're here and you know what? You've got a story a lot like, like Damon's. You've got some stuff going on that no one else knows of. You don't want anyone else to know of. But you've tried and you just can't break free. Maybe you haven't even thought about it. This morning, really the starting place is by surrendering the steering wheel. Giving your life to Christ. Trusting in his death and resurrection for yourself. Now what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come out and they're going to do a song. This is what I would ask us to do. While they're singing, would you listen to the words and would you ask yourself, you don't have to tell anybody else, ask yourself as you're at the crossroads maybe even this morning, have I ever surrendered my life to Christ? And might I do that this morning? Might he want me to do that? Let me pray for us.